All right. Now, we're talking about, uh, we're going to be going, starting a series on the book of Ruth. Uh, we just finished Haggai, and then we talked a little bit about Hannah, and, and, it, and it, those, those other two bring in so many threads that I feel like then also intertwine with the book of, book of Ruth. So many ide- ideas and, and thoughts concerning how uh, Jewish life was in that time. They're around close to the same times, <clears throat> not not terribly close. Ruth is a little further off, but they have similar themes that are going on. And um, I want you to see a couple of things as we look at this. I'm not going to read. We're going to look at Ruth chapter one. All right. So you can follow along in your Bible or on your phone if you have, or you just follow along here. I'm not going to, we're going to take it a chunk at a time it, uh, with this chapter. But here we are, we got an Old Testament book. It's pretty familiar to a lot of us. It's something we know about. Um, it's a beautiful story. It's difficult at times, especially the first chapter. But it's a beautiful story. And, and uh, this book can touch our, it touches heart, our hearts because it has themes and situations that ring true today. It talks about love. It talks about family. It talks about tragedy. It talks about grace. It talks about commitment, empathy. It talks about heartbreak. All of these themes that we're very familiar with in our own lives. So as we study this book, I encourage you to uh, open your heart to what God may be saying to you. Make yourself open to what God may want to impress upon you. Look for things that speak to you personally. I would encourage you, we're going to go for the next four weeks. I'd encourage you to read the book of Ruth. Read ahead. Look for things that you might think are puzzling. Look for things that you might think are kind of different and weird and you don't understand exactly how to interpret it. That's great because we will tackle those things together. And if I miss any of those things, you can call me to account. Call me, say, hey, you dodged, you dodged something right there. I don't ever want to dodge anything. All right. So allow this book to speak to you and be willing, be willing to humble yourself under the word of God. All right. So the first thing I want you to see in this, in this chapter is we're going to look at a tragedy. Um, yes, this thing is asking me questions. I don't know. (laughs) Is tragedy up there? (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. Okay. So first, I I don't want to change any more slides now. I got one to work. First thing we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about there is a tragedy. This book begins. It begins in a very difficult way. So here we go. In the days when the judges ruled, There was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Malon and Kilion. And they were Ephaphrodites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab, and they lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. Then they married Moabite women. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. After they had lived there for about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. All right, so the first thing it tells us is it tells us it's the time of the judges. So this is very key for us because it sets a stage that helps us understand what's going on. What was going on in the time of the judges? There was this continual cycle. The book of Judges is just a cycle that happens over and over and over. What is the cycle? The cycle is this. The children of Israel fall into disobedience. 
all right? Things get tough. People attack them. Famines happen. All this kind of stuff happens. And they cry out to God. And God raises up a judge, someone who will be a ruler, but also uh, the judges were like a, uh, uh, like a political ruler, but also a spiritual ruler. That's what the judges were supposed to be. God raises up a judge. The judge becomes their rescuer. The judge frees them in some way, leads them to victory. And so God rescues his people and they have peace and they flourish. And what happens, and this is, you know, I've talked about this before. You remember when, because uh, this is a fulfillment of something that Moses told the children of Israel as they came out of the wanderings and into the land. He said, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to move into this land and it's going to be great. And the, some of this stuff is already planted for you. These grapevines and these fig trees and these olive trees. And after a few years, you're going to go, look what I have done. And you're going to forget God gave it to you. And this is exactly, and we see this cycle. And here's the deal. This cycle happens in our lives too. When is the time where sometimes we, many times we struggle when things are going really well and we just slide for a bit. We, we, we don't, our relationship with, and then what happens? Something difficult happens and we go, God, help me. Suddenly I'm all about God, right? And so this is the cycle and we're being taught here something about it. And so at this time, it tells us there's a famine. We're in the cycle. Also, another thing that is quoted a number of times in the book of Judges, this is a time where every man, every person did what was right in their own eyes. People lived how they thought they should live. They lived in a way that uh, oftentimes caused problems, caused difficulties in their lives because everybody did what they thought was right in their own eyes. And so that's just an explanation of what's going on. So there's famine, there's a lack of rain, there's crop failures, food has become scarce, people are starving. And not far away is Moab, where there is food. And Moab is not far away. Moab is 50 miles away from where they are in Bethlehem. It's not far to find food. So Eliminate takes his family there. Now, who are the Moabites? The Moabites were the enemies. They were a historical enemy of, of Israel. They worshiped a god named Chemosh. And that god worship involved at times child sacrifice. They did horrific things. Uh, in the name of Chemosh. And at one point, uh, some of the Moabites came and intermarried with some of the Israelites, led them astray, led them into that worship, led them into some of those practices. And God said, stay away from those people. He told them, get away from them. Don't have anything to do with them. And uh, so the Israelites hated the Moabites. Much like in the New Testament, when you look at how they, how they thought of Samaritans, when we talked about that as we went through the book of John, they hated the Moabites. So this famine must have been really bad for a Jew to go to Moab, knowing that the hatreds between them must have been very expensive. Probably uh, in those days, heads of families owned land, right? And so probably that land was sold to finance the trip and living there in the land of Moab. Went, just going there for a while, it said. And so here's where and this is where sometimes I'm a contrarian. This is where commentators oftentimes just go off and point at Elimelech and say, terrible decision. You made a terrible decision. You took your, you took your family to Moab and look what happened. That's your fault, All right? 
and they might be right. But there's one point I like to make. At no point does God say he made a terrible decision. And the other thing is this. If I have a family with young children, because evidently his boys probably we could estimate were 9, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in that age. And I thought my children were going to starve to death. And somebody told me in Richmond there's food. But people say, oh, we don't go to, or I could say Portsmouth. We don't go to Portsmouth. Or I can say Richmond. We don't go to Richmond. You know what happens in Richmond. It's terrible in Richmond. Don't take your family there. I'm like, I'm not going to watch my kids die just because I don't like people from Richmond. I have a son that lives there, so, yeah. I think he made a mistake. Anyways, uh, <laughs> see, that was dumb. That was just a dumb, flippant, low-shelf low joke. So, I, but seriously, think about this. Fathers. How many of you would watch your children die knowing there was food not that far away? Even if the people hated you. That is incredibly difficult. I, do, I cannot fault him. I understand. It may not have been a wise decision, but I totally understand. And, and I, I am not going to sit here and condemn him. Because uh, I, read, I read one commentator and he said, he should have stayed there until the famine ended. But we know the famine lasted 10 years. So saying stay until it ends is really easy to do. Um, I, I listened to this, this commentator. I, I like a lot of the stuff he does, but he does a podcast also. And so here he is in his air-conditioned office with food and water saying, you shouldn't have done that. Man, mm -mm, I'm not taking that stance. I can't do that. I, I, I can understand why they went. And... The other thing he said was, nothing good came out of that decision. I said, well, no, not exactly because Ruth came out of that decision. So we have to consider that. So I push back a little bit about that because uh, I, I think it's easy for us to, to have 20-20 hindsight and critique a person who's making what he believes is a life-saving decision. So, all right. So unless God absolutely condemns things, I'm going I'm to hold my condemnation. All right. So we need to be careful here. But there is, I mean, I, I, had, I, I labeled this part tragedy. There's a tragedy here. Look what happens. We, we, it's terrible, but we have to be careful if we blame him because what that does is that can get us into the position where we start blaming ourselves anytime anything bad happens. Now, sometimes I really mess up and something bad happens to me. It's all my fault. I blame myself. That's fine. But sometimes things happen you don't understand. And you need to be careful. I, I, one time, I went, we were praying for something. This was years and years and years ago. Um, I was in college, and we were praying for somebody who had gotten in, in really sick and ill, and it had been long-lasting. And somebody in there prayed, God, help her to know what you're trying to teach her so she could get out of this. And I thought, wow, that's harsh. You're saying it's her fault. You have no, you, you don't know that. It's, you become like Job's friends, you know, blessing Job with nuggets of wisdom that are just actually slaps in the face. So we, we have to be careful about that. It can be easy to fall into this thing where if something goes wrong, we think it's God's mad at us. Now, sometimes, you know, this is all nuanced. Sometimes God does discipline his children. But I have found in my personal life and in the lives of other people I've talked to, when God disciplines people for something, it's very clear to them. They know right away. They don't just wonder, what have I done that makes God so angry at me? All right? 
So we have to be careful about this. It's easy to blame and cast blame, but uh, oftentimes that can lead us in a bad directions, so bad, in bad directions, all right? So I want to take care of that. Now, there's one other goofy thing I want to take care of. Children's names, all right? Malon means sickly. Killian means slight or punk, maybe. It's kind of a, a, a diminutive, right? And, and, and I cannot tell you in the last three weeks how many sources I've, I've, how many people I've gone to and things that I've read to try to figure out what is up in the Old Testament, especially with, and sometimes in the New Testament, with the names that some of these people give their children, right? It, I know it's, it's like if my, if I'm hoping, you know, I'll have more grandkids. I said, I want the next one named Dorkwad. You know, it's just like, what? What, or doofus, little do, come here. You know, it, it's so weird. Here's the thing. It's not our culture. It's not weird to them. And here's what was interesting to me is I did, I, I ran into some things at um, National Geographic on cultures in the world today that name their kids names that we would think were offensive or terrible that they see no problem with. They interviewed a, a, a woman from a tribe and they said, what is your name? And she said, what her name was, what does that mean, sickly? Your parents named you sickly? And she said, yes. My mom was very sick when I was born. And so they felt like this kind of honors my mom for, for being able to have this child and the child lived. So in her honor of the, all the, everything she put into it, they named me sickly. Now, I would not name my kids sickly, but in some cultures, that's, that's not necessarily a problem. Now, Malon may have been a child who was sickly when he was born, or sometimes they would wait to name for a while to make sure they live. And, uh, and Killian may, may have been a small baby. So they named him, you know, a little punky Brewster or something like that, right? Um, so we have to understand that what kind of shocks our sensibilities aren't necessarily in any way shocking to them. This is normal to them. It's not, there, there's no sense of, of, uh, of something unusual with this. It happens. Now, Malon, maybe he was sickly, and Kilian, maybe he was small, which may explain their early deaths, you know? That, that could be possible. But remember, in those days, people did not live long, and death was a constant all of the time. That's why they always wanted big families. So, understand those two things. Now, here's the tragedy. Elimelech dies. The sons marry. Then they die. This is one of those times where we need to start to work at walking in another person's shoes. Imagine you're Naomi. Remember when we talked in Haggai, and especially with Hannah, in those days, children were key. They were the key to living a long life because they supported you when you couldn't work anymore. Sons, especially in, in that culture, they took care of you in your old age. Women had very few options in those days, practically zero options for life if they had no one to support them because there's nothing they could do on their own. And so here we have this woman in a society that celebrates women with children. We have this woman who's lost her husband and both her children. Everything she has ever hoped for is gone. The future is incredibly bleak. Enter into that. She is, it's over in a sense. 
She has no hope. She has nothing to look forward to. She has no prospects for the future. And so we have this tragedy that, that is crushing. You can imagine. Think of your, your most difficult times. She's there and maybe deeper. Everything. Her standing in society has gone. The way people look at her has totally changed. She has no one to take care of her now and in the future. The future is incredibly bleak. So we had the uh, tragedy, and now we have the parting. Okay, this is verses 6 through 15, and I'm going to read it. You can follow along. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughter-in-laws prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons? Who would become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, that is, to conceive. Even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is better for me than for you. It is bitter. I'm so sorry. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand is turned against me. So in this first part, when she, she's telling them, you need to go back, she's, she's saying, may the Lord bless you. In the midst of her depression, in the midst of this darkest moment, she's still saying, look, God can bless you, which in a sense shows maybe that there, there has been some sort of impact on those two daughters concerning their relationship with the Lord. We don't know for sure, but we'll see when, when Ruth comes up. And, and, she, and they're willing to follow her. And she says, you don't want to come with me. You don't want to come with me. In, the, in, in that next section, she, she goes to a lengthy explanation of talking about what we call the, the Leverite marriage. What that is, is that's the, their nearest kinsman marriage. And we saw that a little bit in Haggai. Zerubbabel was the product of a situation like that. If you have three brothers, and uh, there's a brother who's married and, and, uh, has, but has no kids, and this, this is, a, this is a, a tradition that's throughout the, the Near East, if the, if the brother dies, the next brother takes that wife and, and they, they have kids, those kids become the children of the dead. They continue that name. And that is super important to them. This is why they get so crazy about genealogies and stuff like that. Your name is everything. Your name is the key to you owning property, right? All these brothers would have property. And so someone has to get that property. And so hopefully the other brother will impregnate the wife. She'll have a son. The son will become the owner of that property. This is all so key to them, right? And so what she's saying to them is she's saying, you, you can't hope for that. I can't have kids anymore. And even if I possibly could, you're going to wait all that time. Then you'll be too old. She goes, don't do it. Don't do it. It's not going to happen. And you know, my first thought is, well, they might find a husband in, in Bethlehem. And she's telling them, you're not. You're a Moabite. You're not going to find anybody. 
your best bet is to go back to your family's home and hope for someone there. That's your only hope. She's trying to shield them from what she knows would happen to them when they, if they went back to Judah, if they went to, Jerusalem, to, to Bethlehem. They would be looked down upon. They would be talked about. They would be treated poorly because they're Moabites and they hate them. You got no hope coming with me. Don't come with me. Now, this is Naomi trying her best to secure the future for these two daughter-in-laws. And she's saying it's because, because you've been so good to me. And so I'm asking the Lord to look out for you. Go to your homes. May, and she, may Yahweh, Watch out for you and help you find a husband. That's your only hope. And so they say goodbye. They both cling to her. They cry and, and, and they say goodbye. She's, she says, she's telling them, you can't, you can't go this way. There's no way the deceased husband, she, she's basically telling them, I'm giving up on whatever property may still be there. I'm giving up on whatever name. I'm just gonna go to Bethlehem and hope that people pity me and give me food so that I don't die. I don't starve to death. And uh, she's telling them, it's not going to happen for you. They're not going to pity you like they would pity me because I'm one of them. All right. So, and then she says, it's more bitter for me. Why? Because I have no hope. You have hope but I have no hope. Now you see her state of mind. You see how she feels about herself. You know, enter into that. That is a person, you, if you've ever felt like you're at your wit's end, you're at the end of your rope, you have nothing, you don't know what's gonna happen, you just don't know what to do. That's her. She has no clue. She just knows bitterness that has happened in her life. And so Orpah sees the truth in this and she turns to go home. And as we understand this, as we think this through, we understand now why what Ruth is going to do is mind-boggling. I use mind-boggling a lot today. I don't know why. All right? So we have the tragedy. We have the parting. And now we have the decision. And this is Ruth. And this is one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Therefore, where, no, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me. May it be ever so severely if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Now here's an incredible statement of commitment and faith. In the face of incredible adversity, she understands what this means. She has tied her fortunes, her life, to a woman whose future is bleak at best. And this makes Ruth's future even more bleak. That's why she says, where you die, I die. And the, the way that structure is almost like they'll be very quickly. Because Ruth is realizing, <laughs> they're not going to take care of me. They might take care of you, but they're not going to take care of me. So when you die, I'm going with you. She's willing to do that. That's unbelievable. Tying her fortunes to a woman whose fortunes are nil, being willing to face even that. Why? How can she do this? Just one thing. Your God is my God. That's how she can do it. Your God is my God. In verse 17, she uses the covenant name of Yahweh. Right? 
Verse 17, and, and I want you to see this because I think this is very interesting. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. That is a covenant. When God made the covenant with Abraham, and if you remember, I've said it so many times, most of you have this, should have this memorized, okay, I hope so. Anyways, if you're, I've even just alluded to it. When they cut a covenant, right, they cut the animals, the blood runs in a ravine. The two people who are in the covenant walk through the blood. And when they walk through the blood, they turn back to the other and say, may you do to me what you did to these animals if I break this covenant. And then the other person walks through and says, may you, do to, you may do to me what we did to these animals if I, if I break this covenant. That's called cutting a covenant. It's very common back then. It's still used at times. And so what's going on here is this is a form of covenant, what she's making in verse 17. She's saying, may the Lord deal with me ever so, may the Lord do to me. If I, dis- see, in uh, May the Lord deal with me may ever so severely if even death separate you and me. She's saying, I'm covenanted to you. I will not leave you. I will not leave you. She makes a covenant with Naomi. And that is it right there. When Naomi realizes, okay, she's not going back. She, she just swore to her death. Right? She makes this covenant. It's very, very, it's, 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 it's very cool how these things start to tie together and we see how that, how that works. Ruth becomes a follower of Yahweh. Ruth is, like, I, Ruth is like, I understand. I know I won't find a husband in, in Israel. I know that our prospects are grim. I know quite possibly that we will die fairly soon. I know that these people that I'm making, my people, they hate me. I know that. I am renouncing my gods. No more chimash. I am with Yahweh now. And I am with you, Naomi, and I will trust him. This is an incredible statement. There's no good reason for her to do, to hang. Orpah made the right decision. There's no good reason for her to stay with Naomi except for God. God being involved suddenly makes this the right decision. You know, in our day, faith can be a little self-serving. We can fall into that. We follow God. We want to, we're all about, you know, God is so good when things are going well. When things are going well. Ruth is saying here, I know things are not going to go well. I know that ahead of time. She's saying, you said in verse 13 that you have no hope. Well, I'm giving up my only hope of staying and finding a husband, and I'm following God. She's all in. She pushed her chips to the middle of the table. Everything I have is riding on Yahweh. And the obvious, so what question comes, have you done that? Have you done that? And you may say, oh, Bob, I'm a Christian. I understand that. But if you put everything in the middle, everything, that's hard. I don't make light of that decision. It's very hard. I mean, it starts with accepting Christ as your Savior, understanding what he's done for you. There's a salvation that he's accomplished and accepting it. But as we walk with him, he pushes us to greater commitment. He pushes us to be like Ruth. Just shove everything in the middle. I'm all in. I'm all in, God. And that's hard to do. Because then what happens is, as we follow that, and Christ said the same thing. He said, you got to deny yourself and follow me. He's saying the same thing. Because what happens then is, is, if God prompts you to do something that's difficult, 
Are you gonna do it? I know that's not easy. I've been through those situations where I just have this sense, you know, you should do this, you should do this. And, like, uh, and I'm amazed. I'm amazed at how good I am at coming up with excuses for not doing what God wants me to do. Jeez, um, I hate sharing with you guys. Um, lately, God has been prompting me in some areas especially in financial areas of helping people because so many people helped us over the years, especially when our children were small and we were struggling some and people stepped in and did things that were astounding for us. And uh, lately I feel like God's prompted me in a number of occasions to respond in that way. And I, I just am astounded when I, I react, you know, God, I got to think about the future. I'm telling God that I have to think about the future. How stupid is that, right? I got to think about the future. And you know, that's Orpa right there. Oh, I got to think about the future. What's my future? My future's over here. Then that's where I got to go. And, and she, she just thought of her future and the best way to plan for it. And what did Ruth do? Ruth looked at the situation differently. Ruth said, God's in this. God is in this. So I don't care what it costs me. I don't care if it costs me my life. God's in this. And notice Ruth does not say, God is involved, so I really think things are going to work out fine. She doesn't say that. Every cloud has a silver lining. I heard somebody say that. I thought that was gone now. I thought everybody knew now how dumb it was to say that. Oh, I'm sorry if you just recently said it. But it's just, I heard a few months ago somebody say, well, you know, every cloud has a silver lining. And I wanted to say, yeah, I got your silver lining right here. Right here, baby. I'll give you a silver lining. That's just crazy because you don't know that. With God, all things are possible. With God, every, there's always hope. God can use even the worst things for good. But when you're in the middle of it, the last thing you need is somebody saying, God's going to turn this for good, just you wait. You know, you're just like, ah, I feel like I'm, you know, one foot in the grave, one foot on a banana peel, and you're telling me what God's going to do. That's, that's just not, not helpful. And Ruth says, whatever happens, wherever you go, I'm there with you. She talks about, she specifically talks about death. Because even the trip home would have been perilous. That's not, a, not an easy thing, a dangerous road. And so Ruth says to Naomi, it's just you, me, and God. Let's go. Let's go. So we have this tragedy. We have this parting. We have this decision that's astounding. And now we have, it's a lament. And uh, this is um, verses 19. I forgot to post it. Oh, yeah, here we are. No, that's wrong. Yes, sorry. Technology is my enemy. So the two people, so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. This is, this is an incredible statement. You know, it's interesting to me. It says the whole town is stirred. The, uh, 
the, the Hebrew word there kind of has this idea that everybody's just talking. Everybody's like, you know, and they're, they're in small town, right? A small town. She leaves with two sons and a husband. She comes back with a Moabite girl. And everybody's like, oh, I wonder what happened. Right? The whole town is stirred, and she's the talk of the town. Later in the book, we're going we're gonna to run, in, run into a man named Boaz who's going to say, I've heard about you. <laughs> yes, yes, everyone has. Right? It's the talk of the town. Everybody tried to warn her. You know, no, you didn't. I, I, I did, I did, yeah. So she says, call me Mara because the almighty, and that's that word Shaddai, the mighty one, the almighty God. She goes, he's laid me low. He laid me low. So again, feel her pain. Feel her hopelessness. She's lost everything. She sees no hope for a good outcome. Husband's dead. Her sons, which are the hope for the future, which are the love of her life, which is, means everything in that society. They're gone. Remember uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about Hannah, and she had no child, and she felt worthless and it was uh, reinforced by uh, Panina, who, who constantly poked her. You have no children. You have no son. You're worthless. You're worthless. This is, this is where Naomi is at. She's in a deep, deep darkness. And to make it worse, you know those times maybe where you get into a very deep space and you're struggling and you just want to just disappear. You want to move into a room all by, get into a room all by yourself. And what's happening with her? The whole town is talking about her. The whole town is talking about her. And so everyone knows. And maybe some of you, I know, I know you've been at that place where there's no hope. You've been at that place where you just feel like I'm in the bottom of a deep pit and there's no way out. And you may have said something very much like what Naomi did. And notice again here, God doesn't say, hey, don't you talk about me that way. This is in your Bible. This is, this is and a number of scholars say this is a classic lament. And many of the Psalms are laments. And she laments here in deep despair. We see this in places where people call out to God and even lash out at God in their pain and their anger. And he puts it in the Bible. He wants us to read it. He wants us to understand it. He wants us to appreciate where it comes from and what it means. I'll give you a couple of examples. Psalm 22, this is one you've heard. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. I cry out by night, and there is no rest. That's, that's us, that whole, if you read it, Psalm 22 is a lament. And Jesus lamented on the cross by quoting it. The book of Job is filled with lament, where Job is just saying, this is horrible, and God did it. I would, if he would just come down and talk to me, I would, I would make him apologize. That's essentially what Job is saying. He's saying, if we could have a courtroom, I'd win the case. 
And his friends are saying, how dare you talk about God that way? But you notice when God comes down, he's, God finally says, okay, Job, here I am. And what does God do? He doesn't go, shame on you. He says, let me give you some perspective. Let me give you some perspective. We sang, you know, the vapor of his breath created planets. God says, where were you? You want to tell me how to run this universe? Where were you when I created this? Where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did And finally, Job goes, I got the point. I don't have the perspective. I yield. And God blesses him and does not tell him, you shouldn't have said that stuff. In fact, in, 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 uh, in amazing Job 13, 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. And here we see this too with, um, with Naomi. She's saying, God has dealt bitterly with me. She's not renouncing God. She's not saying, oh, well, I don't believe in him anymore. No, she's just saying, I'm on the end of the stick that was the bad end. And I don't know why, but I, it's just, call me, just call me bitterness because that's the way my life is. Psalm 13, 2. How long, O Lord, will you utterly forget me? Psalm 10, 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand aloof away from me? Why hide in my times of distress? Why are you not listening to me or caring about me? So I want to show you just real quick a couple of things about laments, because these are important, because we will all be in those times at one time or another. There will be times where you will go, why? This is not fair. There will be those times. So I want you to see something. A lament is proof of, a, of, of relationship. The very fact that you're going to God about it is proof that there's a relationship there. That's what's key there. Lament is proof of the relationship. The second thing, a lament is a pathway to intimacy with God. Because what does it do? You express... God wants honesty in our relationship. That's what a re personal relationship is all about, is honesty, right? And God's not in heaven. I mean, I, I, this sounds making fun of it, but God's not in heaven going, oh, don't say that about me. He's not, he's a big guy. He can handle this stuff. He puts it in the Bible so that when we express in honesty and we come before God and we pour our hearts out and say, God, I just don't think this is fair. I don't think you've done me right. Somebody missed an assignment. Something has happened. This is not fair. Lament is proof of relationship. And lament is a pathway to intimacy with God. Because once you've expressed yourself, you now have time to sit and watch and see what God does. We lament right now. We lament for people we just talked about. We, we, we lament for her. We lament for people who go through difficult times. We enter into this. The, the third thing is, a lament is a prayer for God to act. Saying, look, God, this is what I see. Please do something. Please do something. That's what you're saying. And finally, a lament is participation in the pain of others. So that with Caitlin and with others at different times, we lament with them. We participate in their pain. That's why we have the laments in the book of Psalms, so that we will participate with the original writer in this lament. That's what Jesus did. 
when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, I'm lamenting, just like this writer did. He's participating in it. And finally, I want to read you a lament. Psalm 88. And I want you to just, just feel, it's a little long, I might shorten it some. Just feel what the psalmist is feeling. He starts off, Lord, you, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. My, may my prayer come before you and turn your ear to my cry. Because I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. I'm set apart from the dead like the slain who lie in the grave. Whom you remember no more. I'm like the one who's been cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit. He sees, he's you, God. You put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depth. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends. You have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do, you, do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave and your faithfulness and destruction? He's saying, you're killing me. You're destroying me. Is this how you show that? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? Are your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why do you reject me? Why are you hiding from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me all day long. They surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken me, taken from me, friend and neighbor. And this is the last line. Darkness is my closest friend. That's a, that's a lament. That's a psalm of despair. That is in your Bible. God wants it there. Why? Because he wants us to enter into that. He wants us to know there will be times possibly in our life where we will reach those dark places. And this becomes a tool for us. This becomes something we can enter into and say, God, what about me? Why? It's okay to ask why. And it's okay to say, I don't think it's fair. This is horrific. And some of some of you are there right now. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And God says, it's okay. Pour your heart out to me. Tell me what you think. So, she laments. So what? So what do we do with this? And I've talked about that a little bit. One thing is, we help those who are suffering. We lament with those who lament. We laugh with those who laugh. We cry with those who cry. And so we enter into it with people. Secondly, one of the things I think from this passage, we see this, we go all in. God's calling us to go all in with him. He's calling us to take steps to live for him that can at times be difficult, hard, sometimes dangerous steps. And he's calling us when things happen, to lament, to be free to lament, to not feel like, oh, I shouldn't say that. And so what do we do? We put on a face before God? That's just ridiculous. It never works. And so he's calling us to be people who can lament. We all like the praise psalms, right? 
We all like the Thanksgiving songs. We all like the upbeat songs, you know, the tempers, the temp, the, the, the trumpets are blowing. People are ascending the steps, the songs of ascent, and they're praising God, and everybody says, this is the most awesome thing in the world. And that's great. But also there's the laments, and they're another part of our life. When we're not ascending, we feel like we're descending. When the trumpets aren't playing, we feel like we're alone and there's nothing. God says, I'm there too. I'm there also. And finally, there's a ray of hope. The last verse. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And this sets the scene. The, bar, the famine is over. The harvest is plentiful. And the scene is set for these two people. It's very interesting to me, though, that the writer keeps emphasizing certain things. And in that verse, she returned from Moab, yep, with Ruth the Moabite. We already knew that. So what's going on? The writer's saying, understand. Understand, this is a Moabite. This is a Moabitess. This is a woman who will be hated. Her daughter-in-law, what does that do? That casts doubt on the son. Why did you marry a Moabitess? You're not supposed to do that. Arriving in Bethlehem, they've come, uh, Naomi has come back home. And I'm sure for many of them, they're like, I can understand why Naomi came, but why'd that girl come? What's she gonna do here? She's got nothing here. And the barley harvest has beginning. And that sets it up as we move to chapter two next week. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story that is difficult. We see a lament and we are lamenting even now. And uh, Lord, I just, uh, I pray that as, as we study this book, we would see how you work in ways that are totally unexpected. You do things that catch us off guard. All of it to show your great love for us. And so, Father, I pray for those who are lamenting now that they would know they are not in a deep, dark pit all alone. You are with them. There is another in the fire. And so, Lord, we claim that because that's all we have. And we thank you and we trust you as we move ahead, knowing that somehow you will work. We may never see it in this lifetime, but we trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.